Welcome to the Evaluating Biopharma podcast, where we provide industry decision makers with insider access to veteran bioprocessing experts willing to pay it forward so you can leverage their knowledge, learn from their successes, and even avoid repeating their mistakes. I'd like to welcome Susan DaCosta, Chief Technology Officer at Alcyon Therapeutics. Thanks, Hello, Ben. Hello, Susan. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to the about my experiences with that, uh, with uh, gene therapy, uh, CMC. Brilliant. Before we start off, can you give a bit of background bio on yourself? You can certainly do it much better than I. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. So, um, I'm a molecular virologist by training. I've uh, trained on various aspects of viruses, but I started working uh, translationally with uh, gene therapy about a decade ago, where I started in process development at a contract development and manufacturing organization, which at the time was called Florida Biologics um, and was founded by Richard Snyder here in uh, Alachua, Florida, just uh, in the um, backyard of the University of Florida. Um, and that's where I learned about process development and quickly grew uh, in the in the field and translated my uh, expertise and knowledge into QC quality control. Spent a, a good number of time there working on viral vector analytics and the and the um, assay development aspects of it, assay qualification and the like. And then moved back as the head of process and analytical development, uh, tech transfer and the like, when the company got um, uh, acquired by uh, Brahma Bio. And I spent a good number of time building out the team, uh, really uh, focusing on various uh, viral gene uh, therapy vectors, including AAV and uh, lentiviruses. Um, and then I transitioned out of uh, the process development realm into more of being a subject matter expert for technical program design before I moved out of CDMO completely. This is when uh, Brahma had been acquired by Thermo Fisher, and I moved out of the CDMO role completely into the product development company that I work for right now, which is Alcyon Therapeutics. And with Alcyon Therapeutics, we focus primarily on uh, rare neurological diseases that include neurodevelopment diseases like Red Syndrome. Excellent. So what you're saying is you're not new to this. Uh, no, <laughs> not quite new to it. <laughs> Good. Well, let's get started then. So in the context of uh, DNA constructs, what do you think are the most important considerations for our audience in terms of delivering consistent productivity? Yeah, Ben, that's a really profound question, right? It's it's easy to say that, you know, you, you infect or transfect cells with the right constructs and you should be able to make a good uh, viral, uh, viral vector. But depending on what process one uses to build out the product, that by that I mean the final productivity, the efficacy, and the impurity profile will change. Um, so, you know, the cliche term is the process is the product. I, I think more and more we're walking away from that and saying as long as we build good characterization assays to be able to understand the product, the process doesn't need to be the product. Regardless, what is the best technology that one tries to fit in place of that indication. So for example, when I'm thinking about neurological diseases, I really want to understand what is my efficacy, what is my productivity, what is my cost of goods, and I really want to be able to build out the best technology, whether that's transient transfection of adherent to suspension HEK293 cells, whether those are stable cell lines, or whether this is a helper virus system, either the baculovirus or the HSV virus system. I really need to take the time to invest in understanding what is the best 
uh, technology that I need to do use to build out my process. And then I would layer on that the agnostic capabilities of that platform, especially for companies that are working on multiple assets. It's important to be able to build out a platform process. For example, with the same stereotype of AAV, you don't want to you don't want to reinvent the process again. You want to be able to improve your cost of goods. You want to make the process characterization and validation streamlined, and so you can build a further robust process that you could really hone in on the on the critical process parameters that you want to build out. So all of this to say that a quality by design approach is essential as early as possible during the drug discovery phase and as you're building out the constructs, because the key factors that include critical raw materials, critical starting materials will make a difference on how well the viral vector is being produced, how efficacious that product is, and whether that's using a design of experiments to be able to do a single factor or multi-factor experiment to identify the best conditions for transfection agents, cell concentration, the amount of plasmid, the ratio of plasmid transfection agent, the kind of transfection agent, and then the harvesting conditions to be able to build that out. The idea there is to be able to scale up that process. And as you scale it up to the final commercial process, you're still able to get linear increase in productivity, right? Mm. Yeah. So thinking about the process and how the process is the product, that begins as one would say at the start. So in thinking about starting materials and how they dramatically influence the entirety of the process, what are some of the challenges most often seen in your opinion and how would you go about resolving those? Yeah, so when I think of starting materials, the two main components I think about and I bucket them into is one, um, the cell component, because most of the viral vectors that we make are made in bioreactors by using a certain kind of cells, whether that's human embryonic kidney cells, whether that's HeLa cells, or whether those are um, insect cells like SF9. The idea is to be able to find a clone or a population of those cells that would be ideal for the production of our vector. So for the for in the case of HEK293s, not all the HEK293 cell lines that you can find out there are going to produce comparable to each other. So there might be a reason why um, your team might decide to actually work on subcloning those, identifying a clone that has superior productivity as compared to the population, or working through and understanding what media and what supplements are critical to be able to grow these cells up into the bulk cell mass that you need before you can be able to produce your vector. And then more often than not, when you're thinking about your cells, you start with a research cell bank and process development. You identify what your process needs to look like, building up all of the design of experiments like scaling up. But in parallel, more often than not, you want to build out a master cell bank. And that master cell bank is not necessarily going to produce the same way as a research cell bank unless you're taking the time to test it in process development before you're ready to go into a clinical manufacturing phase. So that is really important when you're thinking about cells, ensuring that that bank is consistent and robust no matter which vial you pick out of that bank. And that vial has been tested in process development prior. Mm-hmm. The second bucket I'm thinking about is actually putting in some kind of DNA to yield a viral vector. And that some kind of DNA can be transient transfection. The cells themselves can be stably transfected to be able to have the gene of interest as well as the helper functions, whether that includes an AAV's case, rep and cap in the adenovirus or some other similar large DNA virus um, functions. Or 
Then it's the helper virus kind of situation where you can build your starting materials by building virus banks. And this could be the baculovirus system or the HSV system. And no matter what approach one takes, one needs to make sure that the starting material is built in a very controlled, quality control manner. So for example, if you take plasmids specifically, whether you're using a two-plasmid approach or a three-plasmid approach to build AAV, you need to make sure that you're looking at what the initial constructs look like. A lot of times these were built out in academic labs where you know you cut and paste, you take the original plasmid construct, the backbone, take out the old gene of interest, throw in your new gene of interest, or take a wild-type AAV plasmid, take out the rep and cap and throw in uh, your gene of interest. What that can do, if you're not careful, is leave hot spots for recombination. And that, if you find out too early, uh, too late in the game, that those hotspots for recombination are going to give you a higher stochastic event to get re- replication-competent AAV, it's too late in the conversation. And now you have to stop, go back, and rebuild those constructs to be able to take away those hotspots. So when those plasmids are being constructed, or if you're getting those plasmids from academic labs, doing really good QC to confirm that there aren't any remnants left over that don't need to be there are critical. This is also in the case of adenovirus helpoplasmids, right? Because a lot of the older constructs that were actively used even as late as maybe a couple of years ago had um, hexon and uh, and uh, spike protein left in there. And unfortunately, both of those proteins are very immunogenic. And we know that AAV does encapsulate not just the therapeutic DNA, but also remnants of plasma DNA and host cell DNA. And so if all of this DNA and maybe protein is being expressed in the viral vector construct, then that could be really deleterious in terms of safety, right? So trying to build out the right constructs is really important. Now, I also want to add on the fact that if you're thinking about a baculovirus helpovirus and a baculovirus vector virus system, there is also there a risk that if the constructs are not constructed appropriately, you might drop key promoter elements like the COSAC sequence and not understand that you've dropped it until much later in the game where losing those key promoter elements are going to decrease productivity and also impact the stoichiometry of the two of the three capsid proteins that are required to build out a, a, a transducible, infectable, infectious uh, viral capsid. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a common thread through all of this, or maybe the architecture around it really all ties back again to quality by design and how the quality and QC of each step has direct influence to the steps that directly succeed them downstream. Correct. So in parallel to thinking about productivity, uh, one must also pay attention in these small-scale processes. What is the residual impurities looking like? And are we carrying forward any of these impurities? A lot of times, it's easy to wait until a final process lock step to look at things like replication-competent AEV or look at how much residual uh, host cell DNA or how much residual plasmid DNA is left in the viral vector. And by that time, it might be too late to actually change the process and be able to solve for this. Mm-hmm. What have you seen to be the most critical or influential issues regarding impurities? Um, so when I think about viral vector gene therapy, right, one of the things that comes to mind is it is not 
biologics in general are complex, but it's not your general biologic. When I think of a bio, biologic, I think about a protein, which is a single macromolecule family. So even if you have one or two proteins together, they come and comprise of a single macromolecule family. But when I think about viral vectors, I know that there is at least two, if not more macromolecules in there. So the therapeutic material is the nucleic acid, whether that's DNA or RNA, single-stranded or double-stranded, that's the therapeutic material. But the therapeutic material in and of itself is not what is in the final product. That material needs to be encapsulated by uh, the capsid, a bunch of proteins that are coalescing together around the material and function as a vehicle to take that vector into, into the cell and transduce the cell. And then on top of that, depending on the situation, whether it's lenty or not, there could be an envelope added to it. So you've got a lipid macromolecule on top of that. And so managing that entire process becomes a little bit challenging. So unfortunately, when you're thinking about a virus, it's not just what's in the matrix that is outside in the final formulation buffer. So residual host cell DNA, residual plasmid DNA, that's residual um, impurities that came from the process, of course, will be there in the final formulation. You need to be able to remove them. What's inside the vector, unfortunately, is also a big deal. And those can be host cell DNA packaged into the capsid, host cell uh, protein, maybe uh, hitchhiking on the capsid, um, plasmid DNA or viral uh, helpoviral DNA that's also packaged into the plasmid, uh, into the vector. In those cases, those are product impurities. So I think I bucket them in two places, process impurities and product impurities. Process impurities, definitely you can find unit operations that will really help to improve that. But when I think about product impurities, now is the bigger challenge. The bigger challenge is how can you differentiate a vector, a capsid, that contains DNA that is of the same length, but not therapeutic DNA. How do I separate that out, even if I use ion exchange, even if you use ultracentrifugation? Because more often than not, the charge may not be that different to be able to use ion exchange. More often than not, the size, the weight, uh, the density will not be different when I'm using density gradient centrifugation. So trying to minimize how much gets encapsidated in the upstream process is really the way to go rather than maximize purification processes downstream. Also, managing those impurities, the expectation is how do I manage those impurities? So it's very important. Again, here is a quality by design concept where you think about your quality target product profile. What is your indication? What is your viral vector going to be used for? How much viral vector do you need? And therefore, what is the risk of the impurities that you're bringing in? If you're using a high concentration, high total load of virus that needs to go in systemically, clearly you don't want a whole bunch of empty capsids there because that will cause a serious immunological out, uh, uh, output that you're not interested in. That's uh, safety-wise, it's it's dangerous. But also efficacy-wise, you probably are transducing cells with these empty capsids or with non-therapeutic DNA, and you don't want that either. It's, it, it affects the impurity, uh, the um, uh, efficacy. So the quality target pro product profile converts into what the quality attributes of our vector or our product needs to be. And then doing a risk assessment through those quality attributes, we can identify the critical quality attributes. And that, in a nutshell, is a really critical component. And unless you take a quality by design approach, you understand these parts, there is no way you can build out um, fences for what that impurity expectation needs to be. Mm. Great points there. 
Now, maybe thinking about the potency end of things, do you have any best practices with regard to potency assays that could help the audience? Yeah, so the two main assays that I always think about when I'm building out a process is, of course, the dosing assay, because that dosing assay needs to be really good and tight in terms of its precision to be able to get the two, the different doses when you're doing a dose escalation study. But very closely married to that is the potency assay, because if we cannot determine that the vector lot you're working with is efficacious, it's really difficult to be able to identify how it's going to work in the clinic. And unfortunately, um, Jim also alluded to this, potency assays are generally very complex, either because they're bioassays and inherently uh, challenging to keep precise because of the variability to work with, uh, with cells in general, or there is no easy way to express what you need to express. And whether that's uh, to show transduction, to show expression, or any of the other matrices that Jim was making reference to, because you're using a surrogate situation and an in vitro setting. So really identifying as early as possible innovative ways to work on potency, whether that's an expression assay or a functional assay, and then building it out as robust as possible, that's really critical. The whole time during process development, potency assay, uh, potency assay development, qualification, and validation needs to go on. Of course, you don't validate the assay much later until much later in the life cycle of process development, but regardless, having an assay that you could then quickly be able to test different constructs, be able to use during the in-process or for process development uh, aspect, or just in general to be able to say one lot compares to the other, drawing parallelisms between the reference lot and new lots, that's really critical. As part of that potency assay, I would think you really want to draw fences on, can your assay tell you what a 20% potent lot looks like? Can you ask to tell you what a 300% potent lot looks like, right? And building those fences to be able to then understand that I can then say my specification needs to be 50 to 200% of the reference. I can do that because I've shown that the assay is dynamic and quantitative in those, in between those fences, right? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Now, Finally, I'd like to talk about um, viral vector delivery. So what are your thoughts about viral vector delivery and will the current development and focus on capsid tropism be enough to successfully target the right targets in the human body? Um, yeah, so that is a very important question. One of the main reasons I joined Alcyon Therapeutics, right? When I think about all the clients that I worked with throughout my lifetime um, at um, Thermo Fisher and its predecessor companies in the CDM organization, the biggest thing, the, the, the most common theme was identifying ways the capsid can make the tropism work or the capsid is able to cross a, a barrier like a blood, blood brain barrier to get across into the CNS. In addition, there's a lot of... Um, conversation around um, how can I make the promoter express more once it's transduced? How can I get more expression of my target? Rather than how can I get the right amount of vector, the right amount of dose to the right region in the human body and to the right cell, right? That to me is a more orthogonal approach. The capsids and the engineering of the capsids absolutely makes a difference. But when you think about the holistic way of developing CMC, every time you build a new capsid, you have to customize a whole bunch of new aspects that you have to put in place. Um, and so instead, you know, 
as a field, we need to continue to exploit and explore orthogonal ways of doing this. And one of the things that Alcyon does really well and has for a decade is to think about partner drug delivery or just drug delivery in general for for precise engineering or precise delivery of the drug. And what they're working on, especially in the CNS space, is to identify bioengineering tools that they can put the viral vector in the right place at the right dose. So for example, very recently, uh, we uh, had a press release uh, with uh, a collaboration with Biogen for their ASO that's commercial, that's spinrazin or neosinersin for spinal muscular atrophy. And the technology that we're talking about there is a uh, implantable port catheter device. So the catheter is implanted um, into the intrathecal space of these spinal muscular atrophy patients or will be implanted into the intrathecal space of the spinal muscular atrophy patients. And um, what would happen then is using the port, you could drop the antisense oligonucleotide, in this case, Pinraza, into that port and will be delivered through into the spinal area right where the medicine needs to be. In that particular case, we're really trying to walk away from multiple lumbar punctures. But if you take that concept and you apply it to viral vector gene therapy, then being able to use devices like that and algorithms that really focus on how does the cerebrospinal fluid move Mm -hmm. and bathe the brain and the spinal cord, how can I exploit the fluid dynamics of that specific fluid to be able to push the virus much closer and into the deeper areas of the brain. And then it's all a bunch of uh, concentration-related conversations, right? The better transduction will happen when there's no more virus bathing the inner areas, deeper, uh, more rostral areas of the brain. So if you're looking for a disease like we are, for Rett's disease, uh, Rett's syndrome, you're trying to get into the deeper areas of the brain and you're trying to get into more homogeneous areas of the brain. These kind of orthogonal technologies I believe, are far superior than just going after a better capsid than AV9, right? So I think that our field in gene therapy does not think or exploit or explore more of these partnerships. And I think that's where we could really come up strong if we were to use more orthogonal approaches than just capsid engineering to get a better transduction approach. Right. And I would think staying more caudal in the brain and looking at cerebrospinal fluid, fluid dynamics, that also would limit off-target effects, I would think? Absolutely, yes. So if you're trying to, uh, even SMAs or GENSMA, right, going in um, systemically, I think the dose is about 2E14 vector genomes uh, per keg. But being able to then step back and go intrathecally, that dose significantly can be decreased because you don't need as much to cross the blood-brain barrier. Brilliant. I love that. Okay. Um, Any parting thoughts, Susan, for the audience that have come to mind that you may not have mentioned yet? I think... You know, seeing 10 approvals in the U.S. and EU last year were really, really positive and helpful for me to think about as a field, if we help to collaborate and be able to get more gene therapies out in the foreground, we can build better CMC, we can build better processes, and more importantly, we can build better characterization tools that we can help each other. So I'm always here, you know, championing and cheerleading every uh, 
every therapy that comes to the foreground and is being uh, commercialized. So I would say as a group, I think the, the field needs to think more about how can we ensure that more of these are more uh, common fare that everybody can learn from what can be developed for these patients. Excellent. I couldn't have said anything better, so we'll leave it right there. Thank you so much, Susan. That was a brilliant walk through various important themes, and it was really a, a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks, Ben. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit www.evaluatingbiopharma.com to access the on-demand video and to download the summary article. You can also access the Evaluating Biopharma content archive, sign up for our newsletter, and register to attend an upcoming Evaluating Biopharma virtual networking event. Feedback or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you.